0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I'll tell you something, people. You know, I had said, you know, I'd move back east, and it's so funny because I'm living in a neighborhood which is about five miles from where I grew up. And it's great because I see a lot of people, but what amazes me is in New Jersey, because we're about 10 minutes from Philadelphia, and it's a nice area, how businesses stay and change. Like there was these big bars, this bar I went to, it was considered the meat market back in the day, called the Coastline, that's closed. And other places come and go. And I was driving by a strip shopping center, which there are a lot back here in New Jersey, and it has like five stores. And I swear to God, back in the day, there was a place called Papagallo's, and it was a pizza place. And I still remember that we would sit there and go there, and the owners liked us. So we were in high school, and he, they let us drink. And it just made no sense. We would drink in the back room. But next to it, there was a Chinese restaurant called Yangtze River. And no lie, 35 years later, that place is still open. Every other store has changed. And I talk to people who live back there. It's changed and changed, But that's still open. Anyway, it just amazes me how business goes. And uh, we have a great show today. This gentleman was on my show. It's funny, when he was on my show a few years ago when I recorded in Burbank, he was just about to go to New York and play Mickey Mantle on Broadway. And now he's got a great movie out called Before the Sun Explodes, which he plays a stand-up comic, which he also is. And my guest is Bill Dolls. How you doing, Bill? Hey, how you doing, Steve? Good to see you. I'm sorry, Coop. Got to call you Coop. It's all right. No, it's good. You know, I, I got to tell you something. This is a very funny story. It just, I, you're, you're a big guy on Twitter. You're a... Uh, at you're at Bill Dolls on Twitter. Yeah. And I'm not And I know I'm I'm, I'm at Cooper Talk just because it's branding. But it's funny because you tweet and I tweet different things. And sometimes, I don't know if you do this, but I find people I can't stand. And I just like to see people who are making fun of them. And one of those people is Lisa Bloom. And I got to tell you, one day I click on Lisa Bloom's feed because she's such a hypocritical piece of crap. And the first name I see is you. And you're saying, Lisa Bloom, you are a... And people, I'm just going to say, it sounds like count. <laughs> do you remember doing that? Yeah. I do remember doing that. And I've
1: actually kind of, uh, I've had a little bit of a come to Jesus moment about all that stuff. I mean, not really, but I've had too many people tell me, uh, Bill, you got to be careful. I'm like, oh, who gives a crap? But then I have found out that I have uh, lost jobs because of my social media stuff. How I, do you? How- I found that that?
0: How do you find that out? Like, does someone tell you? I mean, can you give an example? I'll
1: give you, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, do you remember this movie that came out? Uh, it, it was basically the book, I Hope They Serve Beer and Hell, right?
0: Yes, I know it. I know it.
1: Yeah, so I was in the movie. I kind of helped sort of with, with the writing of it a little bit. Um, so I, and I was friends with Tucker and the, the other writer. So I went on tour with them as MC. We're rolling it out city by city. And I would just go around in the line and just uh, and just mess with people. just ask some questions, and of course, invariably the questions, particularly the context of this movie, are going to be sexist, misogynistic, racist. But goofy, and this is also this is an earlier time. This is 2009, right? So I I made a, a video montage of, of this stuff, and uh, if it, it's just if you go Google Bill Dawes hosting reel, and in the industry. It, it did get viral, but it only got passed around in the industry. Like people in the world didn't see it, but it has like thirty thousand views just from industry people because it was passed around. A lot of people were interested in me. So Jay Leto's people were interested in me apparently for um, jaywalking okay. when that was going on, and they looked. I had two versions of the real I had a five-minute quote-unquote clean version, and I had a seven-minute like unfiltered, unedited version. Now, uh, so. And I'm off the cuff, just riffing on the street, and there was a there was a, a little person there. And, uh, and of course, in Tucker's book and in the movie, little people are featured, and he has sex with the little person, blah, blah, blah. So I say, I go there, oh, look, as luck would have it, we have a midget. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say midget. I think the correct term is, and I said height. I, I mean, I can't say the word. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, height n word. you can't say midget. It's a height n word. It's bad. You know, I said obviously. Can you say? Can I curse on your show? What's the deal?
0: Yeah, you can. Okay.
1: Yeah, no problem. I said, oh, I said, I'm sorry. I should have said, we have a height nigger. So it, it's it's dumb. You know, like Eskimos, snow niggers. Like there's a whole like joke about. It wasn't funny. It wasn't a thing. But it was literally at the end of a seven minute thing where I'm riffing, and I just said midget. Oh, I'm sorry, height nigger and. Didn't really think about it. It was not the the video that I was passing around. But the Jay Leno's people saw that video at the end of the seven minutes where I said the N-word. And they completely dropped me from uh, consideration. But that wasn't the only thing. I also had a blog. I wrote a, a, a an article for Punchline magazine after Daniel Tosh was going to get fired from Tosh.0 for his thing at the Laugh Factory. And I was there when that happened at the Laugh Factory when he was... When he made a comment, He's like, oh, yeah, she was rape isn't funny. He goes, oh, it would be funny if, like, five guys stood up right now and raped you. Now, I don't think his response was funny, but it's a Saturday night. Oh, no, I think it was Thursday at the Laugh Factory. Everyone's having fun, drunk. It, it, it never got weird. No, no one took it seriously. But then this girl blogged about it, and every hipster, bearded, flanneled comic, uh, you know, around the country chimed in about rape is nothing to joke about, sexual assault, blah, blah, blah. So, again, at the time, this is 2007, 2008, I just said, hey, look, you should try to fire a guy. A lot of people can do rape jokes. And so I mentioned, like, how, look, Louis C.K. does rape jokes, and everyone loves him. So, uh, apparently that blog being, being published has come back on me as well. You know... It, Something else said. yeah.
0: It's weird, you know, because you, you've been doing comedy for a long time. And, yeah. and it's just so funny how it's changed. Like, me, I, I perform every once in a while, and I've noticed this. I was doing a... Uh, Club Helium in Philly, and my friend Joe Maderis was headlining, and I, I've known Joe forever, so I opened for him. And the the, the Philly crowds are cool, like you know, as a the later crowd was more like hipster. And Joe finally was like, "Would you guys just chill out?" Because he made some joke that was hysterical. But it's just yep. amazing how much comedy has changed in the fact that you know, there's comics who have always done. ...crappy material and they've sucked and they tried to be edgy. I always say on Facebook, whenever I see a comic, go, hey man, you better watch what I say because I'm controversial and edgy. I always say, if you have to say you're controversial and edgy, you aren't. That's sort of yeah. a rule I have. Yeah. But it's just changed so much where, you know, there's so many acts that if you looked at them now they're still funny and and it's like like if kenneths was doing what he was doing now people would be like what the hell even dice and dice's show is hysterical but to me dice is is a, his old stuff just cracks me up but that's the yeah. thing i mean how are you reacting to it because you headline a lot you play la you play the laugh factory la i think you play the laugh factory vegas you're playing different crowds what's your take on different crowds now and is it is la tougher because there are all these Hipsters and I always laugh. I call them coffee shop comics because they're all recording albums or cassettes, but they're only playing coffee shops. They don't go on the road, so I don't know where they're selling their merchandise. Well,
1: uh, I'll give you an example of of something that happened recently. Uh, there, there's a show, and I'm not bashing the show. I think the show is amazing. It's a show called Sweet. A guy named Seth Her- Herzog does it in New York, and the show is like a legendary alt show. And. um we, i've known seth forever we're friends and we, he puts me on show I'm, I'm not really kind of like the the brand of comic that does like that's the type of show that's like club comics or hack and who wants a club comic And man, so it's very hipster very brooklyn uh very kind of like very like new york on the in crowd and the people perform there i mean like the best comics in the world perform there literally pat oswald's been by you know so um, Hannibal Burris is there all the time. It, it, it's a really incredible uh, show. So he gets me on, and I, I'm always like. Anyway, and he went away for um, to Paris, and he wanted to guest host, like in a month advance. So I said, "Sure, I'll guest host for you." And the day that I hosted it was a Tuesday. It was three days after the Harvey Weinstein story broke. The big story broke in the Times. Right. So. And the show is very much about topical events and current events, I'm like, I gotta talk about it. And I, I was like, I'll be really sensitive, I'm not gonna talk about. Um, and I'm telling you, I could not get, I could not get a laugh from from anything. I, I even did jo- I, joke, and I tried, I made myself the victim, they I said, well, if you make yourself the victim, I said, look, I, I came up in New York doing theater. I was sexually assaulted and harassed all the time. I had a cast director tweak my nipple once, had one guy grab my ass this other guy he yanked at my penis for like 10 15 minutes he was stroking my balls the whole time totally inappropriate didn't even give me a part of house of cards this is long before kevin I suppose like that like whatever that's not a joke that's offensive it's a joke about being harassed or by gay guys which you are in the theater community and then making fun of like oh okay like joking that let some gay guy jerk me off for a part of the house of cards um but people were like, people were so. I couldn't even, and it's not even like the best joke, but like, there's got to be a recognition of at least I went for a reversal. I did the rule of three. I made myself the victim. I made myself gay in that joke. And people were still like, they could not budge on the topic of sexual harassment. And I know there are people who, I, I think it's kind of eased a little bit. Like, I've seen comics sort of broach it and people. I don't think the pendulum swung back, but I think there's enough people who have said, "Okay, we gotta like, we gotta recognize that that it's not like monolithically men are all men are assholes and anything that they say is is, is subject to extreme scrutiny." Because the problem is people are assholes, and if you look at women positions where women are in power, whereas at schools they're fucking students left, right, and center. So it's just people suck. Well, I think that's. Yeah.
0: You know what's funny about the whole the whole rape jokes and stuff like that? My girlfriend is a sexual assault survivor. She was in a very high profile case in Philadelphia. She's been on 2020. She's been on a bunch of TV shows. She's spoken at colleges. But then, you know, we were reading like the reviews of Chappelle, like the superhero his power was can he save the world or not rape people. And people were getting so offended. She's someone who gives back to the system, helps people, speaks on different radio shows. And she thought it was hysterical. And I think sometimes we were, it's a different generation. Like, you, when we grew up, comedy was, you know, a lot of dick jokes. It was, you know, just comedy was funny. I mean, you know, you know, you you laughed at Gallagher when you were younger. I mean, we did. Smashing a watermelon back then was like, oh, we've never seen it before. But now I think it's just everybody sits there and they they put a, like you said, they, they put a barrier up. Like, if, if, if just one word comes up, they don't listen. You see it on, like, Facebook all the time. People just jump to every week, there's like, I always like to say, hey, remember that lion Cecil that got killed? Do you remember his name? But people don't, but for that four days, everybody was going crazy.
1: Oh my god, I know. That's so, yeah, that absolutely is a perfect example. I, I, I You know, I, I tend to think that, uh, and this is what Daniel Tosh said, uh, I, he's one of my favorites, he, he said that uh, you can always write an, like, a joke good enough uh, t- to beat the the energy around it to beat the PC energy around it. You could always write a good n-word joke a good rape joke a good If it's good enough, it may be controversial, but ultimately the, the quality of the joke and the integrity of the joke will Beat the kind of weird energy around it. I don't know if you ever saw the video I did the n-word video. I have
0: no it's is it on YouTube? Um,
1: yeah, it actually got like crazy crazy viral. And I know people are like it got viral, but it really got viral. Like I think on Facebook it got like 60 million views. Oh wow. And on and on YouTube I think total on YouTube it's probably somewhere over 10 million. Uh there's on different on different uh, channels, but um but the video is basically like I'm with a black guy, another black guy comes up, asking me for money and I'm like I'm like, oh no, I don't have the money. You better get my money right now, I'll kick your ass. I was like, no. I say, like, hey, man, I want you just relax. And I point to the big black guy I'm with, and he says, nigga. So basically every time I want to use the N-word, I point to this guy and he says it for me. Right? Okay. That's the premise of the joke. And it was just huge, and of course, it's kind of controversial, but in general, the premise is such a solid premise and it goes in a good in a good direction, makes a good, you know, and it's nice and short. And and it and people love it. So it's a good enough joke that I, and granted I'm not a white, I'm not saying the actual word, but you address, you say the one of the most taboo words and you make it funny and interesting and unique and people will, people will respond. So I always think if I have a joke about sexual assault or rape or race or anything that isn't working, it's not that oh audiences are sensitive. I'm like I gotta write a better joke about it.
0: Now, what do you think the difference? Because you are someone who is, you know, used to the old joke was the difference between New York and L.A. You are someone who goes back and forth from New York and L.A. What what do you think? Do you see a difference in crowds? And because you're playing in rooms like Laugh Factory, which is, it's, you're going to get a different crowd there because you're going to get a lot of tourists. Because there's always stars there, people show up. What do you see? Is there a difference in crowds when you're going back and forth between the two cities? That's
1: a good question. I, I, I you know, it's hard. It's hard to say. Like at the end of the day sort of central urban New York and central urban L.A. are not that different. And by urban, I mean, I don't know, cosmopolitan. I guess I mean sort of the people that make up the bulk of the industry in New York, the people that make up the bulk of the industry in L.A. They're all, like, educated, smart, above, good-looking, you know, a little bit entitled and a little bit arrogant on both coasts. Everyone's like, oh, L.A. people are stupid, bad. But I'm like, well, kind of, but kind of not really either, you know. There's a lot of the same people go back and forth. So, um, I have had, I've had my worst experiences definitely in, I mean, I'll, I'll give you another example. I was in, I was in a comedy club called the stand in, uh, in Manhattan. I was on my friend's show and I was doing, and I was doing like a, a race joke. I like to do a lot of race jokes. Cause look, I, you know, I went to my, my experience, like I, I tweeted today, I was like, look, I was never bullied in high school. I was just picked on by black kids. It's a completely different experience, and like that's kind of true. Like white kids didn't bully white kids in my school because they were too busy running from black kids. Okay, and as a half joke, but my school is seventy percent black and thirty percent terrified. Is a joke I said.
0: Okay. um, (laughs) Finally, got you laughing. Way to go! So, oh, no, you're so, funny. I just, I just, I always sit there at interview. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I sit there. I listen, I listen. I don't like to laugh sometimes because then people, you know, I, I interview some comics and I like to talk. And sometimes, you know, at least when I start out, I would get newer comics. And you're not know, newer, and you'd laugh, and then they'd sit there and they start doing interact act, and i be like, no, 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 wait. <laughs> so okay, you know, so no, you so now you're saying back to your point. So
1: I did a joke, and this is a joke I was really like happy about because I was like, oh, it's a great joke that addresses racism. But isn't ra- Isn't racism? Isn't racist, which is like the best thing you want to do. So I was talking about Charlottesville. I'm from Virginia, and I was, and I was talking about how, um, you know, these people, like these people aren't scary. And first of all, I was like, Nazis, like whatever. Like everyone's freaking out about Nazis. Nazis aren't a thing. They're not a problem in America. There isn't a rising threat of Nazis. Right. And I know this because I'm six foot tall. I'm 200 pounds. I'm blonde hair, blue eyes. I've never once been recruited to be in the <laughs> Nazi party, and I'm a first-round draft pick. <laughs> And no one's ever come. To me, Hello, would you like to hear more about the organization? We have some pamphlets. You know, I had this whole thing. So I talk about these people in Charlottesville. And I go, these guys weren't scary. They the, with their like knockoff like J Crew T-shirts, their pottery barn tiki torches, walk around. It's like, what was their big war chant? What's their big battle hymn? Jews will not replace us. I go, really? You're going you're going after the Jews? Like. And I talk about how they go up to black people, and I say, I say, you know, black people would never say Jews will not replace us because they're not worried about it. Right? Because you're never, they're never, you're never here. Subbing into LeBron James is five foot four, rookie sensation Rabbi Moisha Lewitz. Right. So far, so, so good, right? Like that's not right. So I, I say, and they go, look, black people are better every sport ever invented. Can we just admit it in the PC culture. Admit they're better every sport that does not involve water. So the DJ, and that's like a not really, and so this DJ. It's black on the show. He kind of like this little, he's a little sidekick. And and I've known him for years. I go, I go, hey, I go, I go, why is that, man? Why do you think? And the the audience got a little uncomfortable, but I was doing well. And this woman goes, she's in the back of his booze. I I kind of ignored her. And then he goes, he goes, "Um, we don't, we don't like to swim. I go, yeah, why is that? I go, is it because you don't want to get your hair wet? People, you know, kind of like he kind of, like, you know, not that funny. And he goes, he goes, yeah. I go, I understand. You know, hockey skiing be cold damn motherfucker. I said, and rowing, black people don't want to row ever again. So now look, if you tell me that if someone says that's a racist joke, I'm like, why the fuck is that joke racist? Black people don't want to row. Maybe it's actually true. You ever consider the possibility? That a black person rowing is like ah, I don't know, man. There's something about this that rubs me the wrong way. Seriously. So I, and that's the essence of a joke. There's enough truth to it that like, hey, what? Is, there, there's something to it. What is it? Let's explore it. This woman starts booing, get off stage. And I'm like, what? She was racism. She was right. That's not funny. Get off stage. Like, what the fuck? Get off stage? I was like, whoa, relax. I go. First of all. I perform a lot of urban clubs. Black guys love me. Sometimes I feel like a chubby white girl. Right. <laughs> so the audience like laughed a lot. And she says, shut up. Yes. I said, look, I'm not going to, uh, I said, look, I haven't done any hate speech. I'm, look, what I'm saying, my jokes are, are about history, American history, which is dark and ugly and disgusting. So get mad at America if you want to do that. And I'm not using hate speech. I would never say the N word because it offends black people. I'll never say the C word because it offends cunts like you. And the audience went like, yay, and and I, you know, one off, like applause for This girl is waiting. She's complaining to management. She's she's crying in the hallway after the show. And I was like, like, I just walked by. I wasn't, I was just like, what are you so upset about? I was really confused. And she was like, there's some things you can't talk about. And like right there, I'm just like, (laughs) no, no. That, that, that's not a thing. There's always, yes, there is everything. You can talk about everything. You can absolutely talk about everything. Well, you can't talk about the Holocaust. Oh, you really you can't talk about the Holocaust? You know who the biggest comedy icon of the 20th century was? Adolf Hitler. You know how many shows were, were you know how many movies and TV shows and cartoons parodied Adolf Hitler? Dozens, hundreds around the world. Bugs Bunny, Charlie Chaplin, I mean, it goes on and on. So, the idea that you can't parody awful things or can't—that's the whole point of comedy. It's like you—you you can't do comedy for this for the purpose that comedy was created for, which is to make really awful things held up in a way that can make you laugh at them. I mean, my favorite Tosh joke is his 9/11 joke, and I was in New York watching the buildings burn in 9/11. You know, I had friends on Wall Street, so that you know—I mean, everyone was destroyed by that. But he made a great—he makes a great 9/11 joke, and it—and it—and it. And it, and it Made me go, oh, God, that's really kind of, ooh, ouch. It's kind of awful. But the fact, I also laughed. If you can go, ha, and they go, ooh. I think you just wrote an incredible joke. That's always my theory.
0: It's weird. You know, you're right. And it's so funny what you can't say. Like, I, 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 that, when I do perform, I performed a few weeks ago. And I do a joke about, you know, I do a whole thing about my lazy eye. I call it my Mexican eye because it's lazy. And they groan. I go, listen, I'm not saying they're all hard workers. I mean, in L.A., I saw a guy selling sweat socks and oranges. What's that for someone who wants to beat their wife and not leave marks? Well, it's not because of the old grapefruit thing in the bag. And people will laugh, yeah. but some places they get very uptight. And it's like, you sit there and you go, okay, it, once again, it's a joke. It, it's not mean. I'm not saying go out and hit your wife or hit women. That's the last thing I'm against. But it's weird how crowds have changed. And I think more it's the younger hipster generation. I just think they're bored or just they have nothing to do.
1: Yeah, I I, I don't really, you know, because, you know, I have a daughter and my daughter's at Berkeley. So go figure, you know, she's she is super liberal feminist. She she protested Milo there. And I'm by no means a Republican, uh, but I'm also very pro free speech. And I don't think she's anti free speech, but I think she does sort of when I talk to her about it, she does kind of point out. She's like, look, if, if 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 it's going to make people feel a certain way, uncomfortable, why the why does your point of view about it being funny matter? And there's there's a little bit of truth to that. Like if you're going, like I didn't want that girl to cry, obviously. You know what I mean? And complain. Of, and she left with like ten people, and they were all like flicking me off and taking photos of me. I don't know why they were taking photos <laughs> of me. Like, Ooh, we gotcha. You could just Google me and get a photo, but. um, so, I, so part of me is like kind of like, I'm, I'm on the comic side, we're like, ah, fuck you, you know, we, I'm a comic, is a joke. But there's also, there is a part of me that is like, you are, you also have an obligation to your crowd. The thing is with comedy, is it's a self-regulating system because if you do it enough and enough people hate you, you just won't get booked anywhere. So it kind of like takes care of itself. If these people are like, I'm so edgy PC, it's like, yeah, if you're so edgy PC and nobody buys tickets to your shows, who gives a fuck? right. But then, like, if you're Bill Burr and you've developed your audience as massive as you already have, then, you know, you have fans who will, who will, who will be behind you. So you're, you're at very, very low risk of saying anything that's going to offend anybody because you're talking to your fan base. You're in your sort of massive but still echo chamber,
0: you know? So you've known comedy for a while. Now, how did you, how you transition? You don't find many people. I know you played Paul Hornell going on Broadway. You play, played Mickey Mantle, I believe, on Broadway. Are you one of the only comics that has actually, you've been on Broadway two or three times? Three times. Okay, what was your third? What was your third role?
1: It, it was a show right out of school. It was called Sex and Longing. It was an old uh, Christopher Durang play.
0: It wasn't good. It wasn't good. Okay. Well, how do you, I mean, how do you sit there and go back and forth? Because there's, I don't, is there any other stand-up comics who have done Broadway?
1: Yeah, yeah, there was, um, for sure. Um, uh, Larry David. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: <laughs> come on, that's uh, a different
1: uh, story. I, I mean, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not only naming big names, I mean, I'm Chris Rock at Broadway, but um, I'm trying to think, in terms of like just sort of working kind of journeyman comics who do... Um, there, there was a couple who did, like, who've who, who done musical stuff. It's it's actually pretty hard to do plays on Broadway. There's not a lot of opportunity to do plays, and if, and usually when you do plays, you have to be a big name because no one wants to go see a play. They want to see a musical. Um, so in terms of also Broadway plays that I know of, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what other stand-ups, kind of, like, everyday working stand-ups. I'm not sure. How- but I I came up doing theater, and theater is kind of... Um, in and in a, it's sort of my first love, you know, and stand up, stand up sort of came more as a reaction to theater because I'm I've had to come to terms with the fact that I'm a little bit <laughs> I'm a little bit difficult. Uh, I can be a little bit difficult to work with in the theater environment just because I've been doing it for a while and I'm good at it. And I kind of um, like I feel more confident how good I am as a theater actor than I am as a, as a stand up in a way. But that, like, you, you have these directors and these uh, writers sometimes involved in the process, or whoever it is, and sometimes you're like, no, nah, dude, you're wrong. And if you're doing a theater production and there's 15 creative voices on it, and talking about costumes and lighting and all these different people, you know, there's going to be someone that's going to piss you off. And there's going to be someone where you're like, no. Like, I, I spent all this time researching Mickey Mantle. I spent all this time, I want, and I drove to Kentucky, and I visited Paul Horn. I, I gained 20 pounds for this role. I bulked up, I, whatever, and you put everything into it, your heart and soul, and then you go into, and you've been working on it for, rehearsing for a month, but prepping for three months, and you get in the theater, and then, you know, you have some costumes, and you're like, okay, I think you should wear, like, you know, your underwear outside your pants, and you're just like, what? I mean, that's an exaggeration, but they, you know, they just all of a sudden, give you an idea that they have creatively that to you is like that's retarded i'm not going to do that and i've i've had a tough time coming around to letting that um you know i just i, I the last play i did i played Rudolf Nureyev. do you know who that is
0: oh yeah the, the great ball the ballet artist
1: yeah so i played him and you know for that i lost a lot of weight and I, he died of AIDS, so i was kind of and he was also the biggest diva of the of the you know 20th century. The guy was a, a fucking nightmare. And I'm not like method method, but I'm kind of method. And you have to play this like Russian, like this diva Russian ballet uh, dancer. So I was just kind of just sort of in the mode all the time. And uh, and you have all these moving parts. And sometimes people are just inept and incompetent, and you just want to go like fucking like no, don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> You know, or the writer will write a line, you're like, this. hey, guess what, this line doesn't make any, my, my character that I'm in right now would never say this. That's why when the cult Christian Bale thing happened, and that's why it's good to be, like, if you're going to be difficult, you might as well be, like, rich and famous. But uh, when the Christian Bale thing, where he yelled at that that, uh, that DP for changing lights during his shot, people like, he's a nightmare. I'm kind of like, he had a point, too. You don't do that. So I guess my point is when I was, I did this play in 2002, 2003. Uh, it's called Burning Blue. And I ended up getting fired from it um, because I was just, I, and I, I got the best reviews of my life. There's actually an article, there's an article about it. If you type in Bill Dawes' Burning Blue, there's an article in like the front page of uh, Entertainment New York Post about me getting fired. Ironically, it's because I called this assistant stage manager a cunt in the middle of the show. Um, but, uh, but after I got fired from that show, I, you know, and, and other people have been fired, the whole show was a disaster. So it wasn't like, I was just like crazy, like, la terrible. but, uh, but after that, I was like, man, uh, something's going on. Like, I'm not feeling, I, I don't like the fact that I can't have an opinion as an actor where I'm at right now. So that's when I started, after I got fired from that show in like 2003, I started, slowly starting to stand like, end of 2003. Um, yeah, it was basically a reaction to that. But at the end of the day, you know, when I'm not doing theater, eventually I'm like, oh, man, I kind of... kind of, I, I still love it, you know? I still love... It. When you're performing it and you're in it and people aren't fucking with you, it's great.
0: Well, it's you know? funny, it's funny, because, you know, with Lombardi, you know, Dan Loria was on the show a few months ago. And wonderful oh, really? guy, yeah, Dan, oh, my God. He was, yes. he was driving up to... Uh, Talk to some students, so he's talking. In the middle of the interview, his his phone cuts out because he's going up there, Palm Springs. And then I get him back on. I mean, stories. And the guy, I mean, you work with him. The guy is just a uh, a historian. Like he just oh, yeah. loves he loves the old actors, and he wants to. He's someone you know when you hear you say someone that exudes a profession. Dan exudes a profession, and I think he would do any show. Is if you're just the type of person he loves it. And he said about Lombardi. He was very, you know, he was a little irritated. It it didn't get a lot of uh, Tony representation. It didn't get a lot of nominations. Now, for you going into a role like that, as an actor going and being, you've been in the theater for a long time. What What, when that show started, what were your thoughts? Because it's football and it's Broadway. And we don't think of Broadway critics going, hey, let's go watch Vince Lombardi, even though the guy was an amazing leader and coach. What were your thoughts when you started that? And were you surprised by the popularity? Um,
1: yeah, yeah and no. I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Um. You know, originally, I don't know if I'm going to say this, because of shit, Uh. you know, originally Martin Sheen was, I, I by the way, I've, I've done three shows with Dan. I've known Dan since 2004. He's, he's, he's like a serial dad to me. I love Dan to death. Um, and I had actually called Dan. I got, I was the first person cast in Lombardi and I called Dan and said, Hey, you know, they're doing a play called Lombardi. You should talk to your people. He's like, Bill, I've been workshopping that play for a year um anyway dan uh martin sheen was originally going to be was offered the role he was going to do it which would have been a completely different (laughs) experience and then for um and then for uh lombardi's wife it was going to be they had a bunch of not meryl street but they had like a bunch of like a-list actresses that were up for it and they were like oh judith light from uh i was saved by the bell who's the boss so i was kind of like when i started i was a little bit like oh man, this is, I don't know how well this is going to do. And the play kind of was dramatically sort of lacking a real arc, right? Um, And I didn't really know the creative people involved. Um, So we went to the first read-through, and I was kind of, and the other actors, like Chris Sullivan, who's now, you know, This Is Us, he's a fucking huge star now, and Rob Riley, who's on Dynasty, and, um, you know, I was, and, and of course the director... Tommy Cale, who directed Hamilton. So I'm in the room with all these geniuses. I had no idea that I was in the room with people who were like some of the best of the profession. And uh, and I remember when the play started and, and Judith, and I was like, oh, Judith, right. And then she read the first line. She read her first line in the read-through, and I went, oh, she's going to win a Tony. I just knew it right where. I was like, she's, she's going to win a Tony. She didn't win. She got nominated. But uh, So watching Dan and Judith together, I knew that there was something very special going on um and then the fact that tommy kale directed it and also within like just a few weeks of work a couple weeks of work at tommy kale i was like this guy's the smartest person i've ever met in my life i mean i think i I think that as good as ham as good as lin manuel miranda is as brilliant as he is in hamilton i think one of the things people don't get is that tommy kale is equally brilliant and that play would have been nothing without tommy kale because he, that guy is, he, he's so, he's so smart, it pisses me off. Like he could like, like oh, I'm to do up And like in a week, he'd have a, a Netflix special. Right. Yeah. He's the smartest, funniest guy I've ever met. Like, anyway, so, uh, it was really, um, but that, that being said, when we started, we still weren't really sure because we didn't have great audiences. The reviews weren't great. It's not like we had like love letters from the times. Um, the reviews are all like, yeah, you know, so okay. um, but people loved it and people were moved and the football community really, really took, took to it. And, uh, and it, you know, the, the year and a half after that, there were 40 productions of it across America. So, um, it was kind of a slow burn. And also I think there was a lot of serendipity, like the Packers were underdogs that season in the NFL and they ended up winning the Super Bowl. when we're doing a Broadway play about the Packers. Uh, so I, it, there are a lot of things that kind of came, came together at the time. Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's the type of play that's going to be revived on Broadway. Right. <laughs> and, and there was also the NFL definitely got involved in ways to protect their image because they're such assholes that they did take some of the drama out of the play. For example, Paul Horning got a uh, Buddhist suspended from the NFL for gambling. You know, he was a big gambler and, uh, and then the play goes, hey, you know, I I, I couldn't play last year because I got in some trouble with the league, and that's that's how they address it. And I was kind of like, come on, man, like. And it happened as well with Bronx Farmers when I played Mickey Mantle because Mickey Mantle, you know, he fucked the world, and he had to drop out of the home run race because he had untreated syphilis that like bore a hole into his leg. <laughs> that's why that that's why he dropped out of the home run race with uh, Roger Maris, and uh, and there was a line was I said. He said, uh, he goes, hey, man, you know, I led the league in STDs four years in a row. Uh, and said so my wife came in second or something like that. I, like, I led the league. Oh, he goes, I had a hole in my thigh. I don't want to say where it's from, but I, let me just say this. I led the league in STDs four years in a row. My wife came in second. Now, that's a line that he actually said. That's a quote. That's a direct quote that Mickey Mantle said in the locker room. It explains everything about the character. His biggest tragedy was the fact he had to drop out of the home run race. He's making a joke about it. He talks about his STDs, his womanizing, the fact he was married and she on his wife. It, it, it explains a lot about the tragedy that is Mickey Mantle. So that line had more integrity than almost any line in the goddamn play because it was also something he said. And MLB and the Yankees were like, we can't have that line in play. And I was so goddamn mad because I'm like, this is what drama is. People don't want to see – you know. Talk about like I hit so many home runs and stole bases and da 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 and made this out. No one gives a shit about that. No one wants to read the back of a player's card. They want the drama. They want the fact that Mickey Mantle was like, was a mess, and an alcoholic, and and this play in any is some sort of redemption of his of his soul. You know that's what they want. It's like gay people and like Jewish New Yorkers. They don't want bullshit. They want the real shit. So uh, I think Bronx Bombers bombed because it didn't quite go into the drama enough. And Lombardi, luckily, with Dan and Judith, there was enough heart there that I think was able to kind of bridge the gap between both, between making NFL happy and making theater goes happy. But I always tell people, like, if you're going to do a piece for theater, it has to be for theater goes. It can't be for about, like the Tupac Shakur uh, did did a Broadway musical. My friend produced it. And it was like, oh, Tupac Shakur fans are going to show up and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, you got to make a, a show for theater people. And if it's good, then the Tupac Shakur fans will show up. Don't make a show for Tupac Shakur fans. And we made a play for uh, the Broadway Bronx Bombers for Yankees fans. We didn't make it for theater fans. That's why I bombed.
0: Now, you've done you've done a lot of theater. Now, this new movie, Before the Sun Explodes... How did that come about? And is that your first starring vehicle? I know you've been in different TV shows, but is that your first lead in a movie? And people just, you know, uh, if you don't have Amazon Prime, get it. Because I'm going to tell you why. And I, I could do a commercial for Amazon Prime, to be honest, Bill. I got yeah. it I got it when someone, I helped I helped someone do some PR. So they gave me an Amazon gift card, $250 gift card. I was just helping out a friend. So I had to buy stuff. And so I got Prime because I'm like, I'll, I'll do the free trial. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh my God, free shipping. So, when you, instead of going to the store, you get this stuff. But then you find out all these things like Amazon Music. And I can listen to anything because now there's unlimited. It's like three months now for 99 cents a deal. And then your movie, I can just go find it on Amazon Prime. You just Google Before the Sun Explodes and it's there. How did the movie come about? And as I said, is this your first starring vehicle? And how you did you co-write it? I know you tweeted you co-wrote it, but I didn't see your name in the credits. So I was a little confused. Yeah. And it's about stand-up comedy. Cool. And it, and is that is is the beginning? Is that your act? How did the whole thing come about?
1: Good question. Well, first of all, not my first starting role at all. Actually, when I first when I was first out of school, in like the early 2000s, I booked a I booked a bunch. I had a film called even hand that uh, did a bunch of festivals. It was on Sunday's Channel for a few years. I played a cop. I was leading that. I did two kids films where I was, like, one the lead good guy, one the lead bad guy. Uh, another film that did some festivals, I don't think it know if it got bought. But, no, this is like, my fifth lead in the feature. But the funny thing is, is before this, my last lead in the feature was, like, uh uh like, 11 <laughs> like, 12 years or 11 years. I was, like, God damn it. That's been a long time. Um, So the guy, there's a guy named Zeke Farrow who I knew in New York who um, – had me do some readings, and I was always sort of really. He he wrote like before Glee. He wrote like a movie version of Glee, and and I said, "Hey, can I give you some notes on it?" And I gave him notes. He's like, "These are the best notes I've ever gotten on on a on a thing." So he just kind of kept me. Ever since then, he kept me on his radar. We weren't really super close friends. We were, we talked, and, um, then. Uh, and then kind of, and I did another reading of his and I would give him notes. That was kind of the idea. I was like an actor, but also sort of a script doctor. And uh, he'd always love my notes. And then he said, Hey, come check out this read. And so I read it, go comic 40 kind of, you know, kind of in a crisis with a woman who's making a lot more money has kids. And I was like, "This sounds a little bit like, cause at the time, I think I was dating like a really, I just broke up with this really, really wealthy woman. I was like this is kind of fucked up like he you know this is is this it just felt a little close to home and then um and then we read it and there was really bad stand up comedy all throughout I was like they, you know you can't just you can't just be a screenwriter and be like let me write stand up comedy it's a completely different beast obviously. Right. Right. Uh, so which i think he gets shown out and shows like like mrs mazel and and i'm dying up here like they're not com- it's not comics writing their best jokes on the show it's like screenwriters writing jokes i think comics would tell that aren't funny Ooh, i should have said that but it's true anyway so um <laughs> the the uh so i did i did the reading i didn't really think about it i gave you know gave him some notes and the director didn't want me deborah i, I was just i was like i don't know if i like them. i don't think it's good enough. we get so find someone else so zeke called me and he said hey bill Debra's not really convinced. We're going to do another reading. And he goes, you should know this. I wrote the part for you. It's a little bit based on you, but I wrote it for you. So go in there and do the character the way that you should, because, I because you know, who else is going to do it? I was like, oh, shit. All right. So I came in there and I actually brought my own stand up to, uh, to the table this time. And, uh, and then she was like, okay, I'm convinced. Okay, it's definitely you. And then I was in the process of, of finding finding the the co-star because she wanted to be someone that I'd report. At one point, we brought in Tiffany Haddish and we offered her the role and she was going to do it. But then she's like, Bill, I don't know if I can do it because I, I, just, I just had these auditions for... Uh, and at this time, she hadn't really done much at all. She's like, I had an audition for this movie Keanu and an audition for this show called The Carmichael Show and they went pretty well. And I'm like, this bitch isn't going to get an NBC sitcom and a studio feature in the same week as my movie. That's not when I, of course, she got both <laughs> um, So she had turned down. And Sarah Butler's great. So there's nothing against Sarah. It would have been a different movie if Tiffany got it, for better or for worse. Probably better. Obviously better at this point. But um, so, uh, so, yeah, it was kind of... And then we began a rehearsal process where we just workshopped the scenes. Um, and I kind of... You know, whenever I do a play or wherever I do, I, I kind of can't help but get involved in the creative process and the writing of it, you know, because it's sort of one of my passions. I can't just kind of, you know, so I sort of helped sort of rewrite the scenes uh, and rewrite the script and rewrite the plot for about two, three weeks before we uh, started. And obviously, all the stand up is my own stand up. And, um, and you know, the, I, I'm not going to argue for co-writing for writing credit, but they're like, we'll, we'll give you a co-producing credit. And I, I you know, all, it's all—it's been a sort of one of the tragedies of my career is I end up write, doing a lot of writing on a lot of stuff I get involved in that gets to be kind of a hit, and then I, I don't ever ask for credit because I just want—I just want the product. I want the product to be good. And I'm like, if the product is good, who gives a shit about the credit? And then once it's a hit, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I should have gotten the credit.
0: What are some of the other examples of that?
1: The first show I did was a show called uh, "Gross Indecency," about the trials of Oscar Wilde. A guy named Moises Kaufman, quote unquote, wrote it. wrote it But he, he it was a you know it was a workshop in a basement of a church, and it was a three hour mess. And he and English is a second language too, so he was just I was like Moises, this play is a mess, man. It's a three hour. No one's going to care about a three hour transcript of trials. You gotta we gotta cut this down. And so he said, "Can you cut it down for me?" So I spent like, you know, and I'm like 24, so I spent like weeks and weeks just cutting it down to like 220, 225. It's all primary sources, so was a hard thing to do. And then I, uh, you know, gave it to him, and he goes, good, this is perfect. And so we used all the cuts. Um, He didn't tell anyone the cast. Everyone the cast knew. They were like, Bill should get some dramaturgical credit or something. And I was like, I don't care. We're in a church basement. that gives a shit. Anyway, the play ended up winning every award off-Broadway. It launched the career of Michael Emerson, and it was like, it made like $6 million off-Broadway. It was a smash hit. And Moises Kaufman went in to become like the biggest theater director in New York City. (laughs) So there's stuff like that where I'm like, man, when you're 24 and you're in a church basement, you don't think like, you don't think about the credit. You don't think like, hey, I want a writing credit or some semblance of writing credit. Even if it was like, Moises Kaufman and members of this theater company or, or and cast members, something. Um, because then you're sort of excluded from all the awards and the awards are things that get the attention of the industry. So then there's just a bunch of bunch of different um, shows and plays that, that movies along the way that I kind of, like I hope that uh, Sir Baron Howell's example, although that movie bombed. where you kind of, uh, Lombardi is an example, like just plays where you kind of really get, get in the, in the trenches and, and and work and help help write it help create it, and you never think about the um, the the final product because you just want to um you just want it to be made, and then when it is made and it goes to South by Southwest or even hand yeah I, I co wrote even hand I never asked for credit for that you just you know you just want the pro- and then when it gets made you kind of go oh, well that's my fault I mean I'm not mad at it anyone anyway. it's kind of like I just never I never I never thought about it. I'm,
0: I'm definitely glad it wasn't something like Hamilton. Right. <laughs> now, now for uh, before the sun explodes, could you have done that role if it wasn't your stand-up? I mean, because you're associated with a character. I mean, as an actor, if you're stuck to put on something where you have to do stand-up, and as you said, if you think it's crappy stand-up, it must be harder to be a com- a comic trying to deliver stuff that you know isn't funny. That's It's funny you say that, because
1: I, 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 I had an audition for The f- Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon, Amazon Prime. It's a, a, a series about a female comic in the 50s or 60s. And I auditioned to be like a 50s comic. This guy named Howard Fawn, I think, uh, was his name. And they gave me the material. And the material was, and granted, stamp has come a long way, so 50s material, there's just not a lot of... What I consider jokes, you know, they're just stuff like, "Yeah, so I'm having a tough time sleeping. I can't count sheep. That's too distracting." Ha 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 Why is that a joke? Right? <laughs> they're so cute. Why are you jumping the fence, little guy? And so, so I, uh, I was at the Laugh Factory in Vegas headlining, and I said, "I'm going to," um, I said, "I'm going to film my audition on the Laugh Factory stage, and I'm going to add my own punchlines because these jokes are sans punchlines." and make it funny, you know? So I kind of tweak the stand up performed for an audience. I'd say, hey "Guys, I'm going to do a character called Howard Font." I said, "Hey, I was over there and I did and, and it did really well." And I was so happy that I got these laughs. I added punchlines to these jokes where there weren't on, um kept it kind of in that era. I sent it to my agent. I was so proud of myself, and the casting director was like, basically like, "I can't believe he did that. He did our material in public." that's you know a breach of blah 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 and they didn't like ban me from doing the show but they just like they were like we're not going to send this to the uh to the producers we can't even like you kidding me and i was like i just and i want to say like i just took something that was like garbage and made it funny like why wouldn't you want to do that it it really kind of like disheartened me it made me kind of you know it's like part of the reasons why you go wolf why I jump back between comedy and acting, because I, I I love acting, but when you're put in a situation where, like, you have these people who aren't open to, like, possibility and ideas and, like, oh, that's cool. I mean, one thing about, I'll, I'll say this about Tommy Kale, who I think is the best theater director I've ever worked with. He's probably going to be the next Spielberg. But Tommy, um, you know, there was a monologue in Lombardi where I talked about a dog. I said, hey, one time there was this dog, and we're on the field, and this dog was yapping around, no one can get rid of the dog, and... It's kind of a goofy, funny, long monologue in the middle that my character plays. And they cut it. And, um, and meanwhile, there's a multi million dollar Broadway show. They go, We cut it. We want to put it in this other scene with you and the reporter. And I was like, We can't cut it, Tommy. We need this scene. It's really important for my character. It describes on Broadway. And he was like, well, Why? Why do you want it so bad? And I just came this long pitch. And I wrote him a long email. We're three weeks in rehearsal. He goes, Okay, fine. We, we'll keep it. Thank you so much. We keep it. I do the monologue. The monologue does good. it does well. It's a funny little bit. Um, and about three months into the run of the show, I go, this monologue is fucking stupid. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense, and it does not contribute to the plot or the story of this production at all. And I go, "How? I can't believe Tommy Kale was more concerned with making his little petulant baby actor happy than... Giving us, giving the script slightly more integrity. You know, it's not like he was going to place it with like the best scene in the world, but he just knew that it was important to make. And look, at the end of the day, I think that that's what, that's what directors and artists and everyone, like, we're all peers. In any community where, like, the directors on Punya piano and the playwrights on and the actors are these lowly subservient, you know, whatever, cotton pickers. That's not, I shouldn't say that, but just like these serfs these who are just like catching the. The drippings from these, you know, gods of, of art—it's ridiculous. We're all creating together, you know. So uh, I forgot the question. Maybe I had too much coffee this morning.
0: You may have. No, we were just talking about um, the movies and and doing comedy and you know, doing stand up in with in with before the sun explodes. If you had to do some other ones, someone else's act, but you didn't. You got to do your own act. Yeah, so now, ha- act
1: like yeah, doing that act it's like it's it's impossible not to to, you gotta put your own spin on it, or it just feels like you. you I can't, it's just hard to do. When, when you're acting in like, the thing about acting in TV and film, the, the great thing about it, which is why I'm kind of more interested in that than I'm in theater at this point, is if there's a line that you loved that you wanna say, or something you wanna do on TV or film, you'll get the take. They'll give you, just do it the first take, and they'll go, why the fuck did you do that? am like, oh, I don't know, sorry. And then do it their way. But you'll always get a chance to do it. And in the editing room, they'll decide. So if you're really like, if your panties are in a twist because there's a line that you want to say or there's something you want to do, and you have a director that won't let you, at least for TV and film, you'll get a shot. For theater, if there's a line that doesn't work and you, and you go, oh man, I really just want, I want to say it this way or do it this way. Can I please change this one word or whatever it is? Um, You can be told no, and if you disregard that, you get fired. Which to me is just you know, not every director works that way. I think the best directors are directors who work who work with their actors. But um, yeah, it it just goes back to saying like, as a stand-up, working on your material like that's why I can't really have I, I can't really have people write jokes for me. I don't know how you can do that because you have to have your own point of view in anything you say, and you kind of can't really fake point of
0: view, you know. So okay. with the movie, how how did you like the chemistry with your lead? And was it was it easy to you know, when you're you're doing scenes, you know, one on one and stuff like that, and it is the comedy world and we all know how the comedy world is, can be, and sometimes, you know, you don't know if it's realistic. I mean, I know back when I was doing a lot of setup, there wasn't really a lot of females, to be honest. It was in Philadelphia and then I was on the road. But what was it like yeah. shooting those scenes and did you did you really feel that it got the gist of what you're going for?
1: Well, let me ask you did, you: did you feel that it realistically captured the comedy role? I, I I will say this as a caveat to it: the the when Deborah, I think it was Deborah's original idea. Zeke is a guy who kind of got me on board and got Deborah to do it as a com- comic, and then kind of wrote the part for me. But I think Deborah originally wanted it to be about a musician. I, you know, for her, the, the 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 job didn't really matter. It was really the backdrop for a relationship and stalkers and a relationship that goes south and how this guy gets involved with this woman. So he could have been anything. So for her, the stand-up comedy, and this may be to the de- detriment of the movie, it may be to the enhancement of the movie, the stand-up comedy was kind of irrelevant. Now for me, as a comic, and particularly work at the Laugh Factory, I'm like, it's it's the essence of the movie. So we had scenes where Don was on stage being Don who's one of the most legendary comics American history up there, killing the killing, like just with the, with the crowd of extras, killing it and bringing me on stage. And I was like, it works for the show because he shows him killing and he's a legend. And we're at the laugh factory and it, it adds some real authenticity to it. And then I go up there and then I bomb. So for me, it, I really wanted Dom in it. And there are other comics like Jake Chris Newberg and Johnny Sanchez who do a lot and work a lot who are also on the show. Um, and Deborah cut it all out. Um, she also cut out a lot of my comedy and also when I perform, as you see in the movie, I completely bomb with jokes that work. You know what I mean? Wait, how do, I, was it's
0: thinking, fine. I was thinking, though, how do you, how do, you do that? It's got to throw your timing off because it's like anything. You know, when you've done comedy for a long time, like in the opening, you're doing these jokes and you're not getting anything. You're the first thing you do. <laughs> but you know, you know what jokes work and don't. And you know that you get used to that cadence and how to deliver it. How do you as an actor pull that off that they're just falling flat?
1: Well, you know, the thing is, the the AD goes up there and goes, okay, guys, Bill's going to go, and he goes, nobody laughs at his jokes. And I was like, oh, man. (laughs) And even though you're acting and it's part of the movie, it still is a humiliating experience because I don't care what people – here's one of the weirdest things about about stand-up comedy. And this is why TV stand-up and Netflix specials and all this stuff like they're always a little bit sort of like weird and authentic, because you can always just pipe in laughter and make unfunny shit seem funny, or make funny shit seem incredibly funny. You can just audio and I, and I, and I don't want to name names, but I know for a fact there are certain big comics who have specials where they bombed the taping. they bombed, but you sure as fuck can't tell it when you watch it on HBO or on I you know I'll just say HBO get a little more specific they look like they kill and and people were there like dude that guy bombed what the fuck so um so if you if you go up there and you do your best jokes i don't care who you are louis ck or bill burr and i've seen both those guys bomb with incredible jokes so if you go up there and no one's laughing for whatever fucking reason you piss people off the wrong way or they're in a bad mood and blah blah blah, people will just go oh i saw the he's not funny at all So one of the things that annoyed me about this, about the way the tech they went and, and Deborah and Zeke, you know, that's, that's their prerogative. But, uh, and it it is, it is again, me being a, a baby and being a little difficult to work with. I had a big, I had a big problem with that. I was like, I was like, guys, that's not how a bomb happens, you know? But they were like, we don't care. We just want you to bomb and show that you blew this opportunity. Um, so I, you know, the way the bomb happens, as you know, is you go up there and you start telling jokes, and people aren't laughing. You either address it, or you change directions, or you, you do that. Was as a church group, or you do crowd work, or you don't just route, go through your material, and then at the end of it, go, are you with me, guys? Right. And laughing. <laughs> so it's a little, it's a little, it's a little, I mean, the scene's very uncomfortable to watch, and it's very, um... You know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's totally inauthentic because also if you're doing an audition, which this guy's doing, he's doing an audition, uh, monologue for a, um, production company, you do kind of stick to the script and you could do just kind of go with it. Right. You don't kind of start you don't do the, the, the fourth quarter audible. So I have seen people like, Oh, let me do my five minute letterman. And then they go up there and they're bombing almost the whole time. They're like, fuck, I can't, maybe I should change the scene. Um, so it is kind of authentic that way. I would have, if it was up to me, I would have made it a, a thing where he was, where he's a funny comic. He's doing well. He screws up a joke, or he gets heckled, or he calls a woman a cunt, or he he he, he does something that has that makes the audience turn on him. So that you gotta go as a comic, go oh, this guy was doing well and he blew it. He's the reason he blew it. But instead, the reason I blew it, according to every review, is Bill Dawes playing very unfunny comic Ken Cooper with, you know, with my own material, with, with jokes that, and they're not like my favorite jokes, but these jokes, and, and, and they didn't do all the jokes I did on stage, but these are jokes that work. I mean, just a simple joke of like, Guys, you know, you know I, I think about, like, do I stay single, or get married? Like, that's a question of life. Like, single, married, single, either you sign signing for a lonely existence, jerking off to porn every night, or you stay single. Look, even if you don't like that joke, it's got solid construction.
0: And you're going to laugh.
1: Yeah, it's a solid. So the fact that you do that joke and, like, nobody laughs, it's kind of funny to me. Um, but I think Deborah's more interested in the fact that, um, That that she wanted to be just cringy. She wanted the whole movie to have this weird, awkward, cringy feeling, and have it from my point of view. I think she is kind of a genius. I think she's kind of like a, a real sort of. She has a very like insular view, and like her way is like this is how I want to do it. It's not the movie I would have made. In the editing room, I would have gone in a different direction. I would have done reshoots for the Laugh Factory, but but people have watched this movie. Who aren't comics and people who are comics and people are like affected by it it's really bizarre people are like man that movie really creeps me out or it was hit close to home or like i i want to take a shower afterwards or just like it, it had this sort of weird kind of foreboding uncomfortable feeling that it left people with which i guess at the end of the day is sort of more important than i get people laughing at my dick
0: jokes exactly well you know what i want to thank you for coming on man uh I, and it's funny because you know that's before the sun explodes and it's on amazon and now uh are you are you tweeting though i mean because you know you don't want to get in trouble are you tweeting because it's at bill dolls but do you tweet constantly or what once a day
1: um it kind of depends when it when when i get moved to do it um i'm trying to think what the last thing i i, I tweeted was Um, Oh, yeah, I didn't get bullied in high school. I got picked up by Black Lives. I think I tweeted that like the middle of the night last night, just kind of on ambient. But um, uh, yeah, so yeah, I I, I was getting really political on Facebook and Twitter, and I just kind of stopped because enough people were. And then I did Kevin Can Wait this this season of Kevin Can Wait. And uh, they, you know, I know they liked me, and it was a fun little episode. And the showrunner goes, "Hey, man, you know yeah, you I've watched your stand-up online too, and it just made me realize like you forget how like how small the industry is at the end of the day like people you have shit online, it's just there. people just see it, so they can just go back you, 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 Trevor Noah gets hired to be daily show host and they go back seven years and they find a tweet that's sexist and they try to get him fired. it's yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy.
0: Well, so. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Bill. So, people, go check out Bill Toss on Twitter. It's Bill Dawes. D-A-W-E-S. I'm at Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. You can go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 660 episodes up there. Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. And don't forget... You can get a great stopping, stocking stuffer. Go to StopTheSalt.com. It's my low-sodium cookbook. When I got out of the hospital, I wrote an uh, easy cookbook. No recipes that are too long. You know, you look at them, there's no pictures that intimidate you. You know, none, no too many ingredients you don't have. It's easy cooking for one called StopTheSalt.com. You can get it on Amazon Prime, where you can also see uh, Bill's movie. Or you can go to StopTheSalt.com where I make more money and I'll sign up for you. So I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vegetables, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.